September 11, 2001, it was a harsh reminder that we do not live in a safe world. Facing this reality requires that you take precautions. I don't think that it means you stop living. There was an eerie hush in the days immediately following 9-11. Some of us will remember that as air traffic was grounded and the skies were unusually quiet. I remember where I stood when I heard news of the assault on the first tower in New York City, but I remember just as vividly where I was when I heard the first airplane after that event. It, it marked a unique turn. And it said, in a sense, that while we're taking precautions and realize the dangers, we've got to get back to life here. We've got to live. You acknowledge that you live in a dangerous world in which people want to kill you. You take precautions against that. But then you keep living. And so it really should be for those of us who have come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as we relate to the fallen world that is around us. A few Christian groups fully recognize the moral dangers of the world and they respond by retreating from it. They, in a sense, ground the mission. They avoid all unnecessary engagement with the world, content to hide in their cultural bunkers until kingdom come. It doesn't square with what Jesus taught us. It does not square with how Jesus lived. It certainly is out of sync with how the early church lived. To simply admit the dangers and run away and hide. But it is the other end of the evangelical spectrum at least that is perhaps more concerning to us and what I'd like to focus upon here today. And that's the orientation that seems to miss the fact that there is danger in the world morally. It does not take the precautions that it should. In 1987, Classic work, the University of Virginia sociologist James Davison Hunter wrote the award-winning book, Evangelicals, The Coming Generation. In this work, he surveyed students in evangelical colleges and seminaries, concluding that the emerging generations who trust in the death and resurrection of Christ for salvation, that they were losing any sense of the dangers of worldliness. That was, at that time, my generation. I was coming out of college and in seminary while these surveys were being taken. And he argued that activities which once were clearly viewed as worldly or immoral were no longer seen with such clarity. Hunter demonstrated that for my generation, quote, many of the distinctions separating Christian conduct from worldly conduct have been challenged, if not altogether undermined. Even the words worldly and worldliness have, within a generation, lost most of their traditional meaning and even relevance for the coming generation of evangelicals. Hunter argues that we have largely, his words, forgotten, repudiated, or, quote, outgrown these traditional definitions. In a manner of speaking, then, the evangelical mainstream looks at a world of moral and spiritual terrorism and says, it's not a big deal. 
It's okay, we'll be fine. This is just not that big of a deal. And so the mainstream takes fewer and fewer precautions to arm itself against the world as it grows more and more comfortable with living in worldly ways. So while the moral dangers of the world in which we live are ever-expanding, our moral vigilance and willingness to withstand that world is in steep decline. As a result, the church of Jesus Christ is being systematically seduced and profoundly shaped by the world while we trip along oblivious to our condition. There's no real danger. Time sort of mushes over some of the weaknesses of the past and some of the things that happened in our past that we didn't like a whole lot. As time passes, they kind of look a little better in light. And so we have a tendency, I think, as people to always think of our situation now as the very worst it's ever been. And I I don't think that's really ultimately the case. But we do have a particularly unique struggle in our day. And we'll get back to that perhaps in time here. But none of this discussion is something new. It's not a new problem. That somehow because of, the, of modernity, we are dealing now with issues that no one ever faced in any way, shape, or form. It's not the case. Writing to first century followers of Christ, we're talking about a day of persecution. Definitely weeds out a lot of people. Very committed followers of Christ in that early century. The Apostle John wrote extensively about the believer's battle with the world and our need to recognize its moral dangers and to take precautions against them. So I will say that as we enter into this discussion, this is certainly not a popular topic in our day in the West among churches, generally speaking, who hold to the evangelical faith. But though it is not something that's popular, it's something that's very much at issue. In fact, we're looking here at the words of the Spirit of God. God Himself is giving us instruction here as how we must filter our world. And so the Apostle writes boldly on this issue. A book within a book that was written to help us discern whether or not we are genuinely in the faith. We shouldn't dismiss that idea. As we talk about worldliness, here within this book that says, I want you to discern whether you're in the faith, we have a discussion on this very matter. Within the particular context here, we're dealing with this area of walking in the light. A metaphor for walking with Christ, being genuinely born again. In that context now, we're looking at one of the evidences that we're walking in the light, which is that we do not love the world. That we eschew worldliness. This isn't my counsel. This isn't a late-breaking idea. But here in the first century, the counsel of God, we must not love the world. We know these words well, but let's hear them with fresh ears as we hear the counsel of our God to us. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world 
the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions. If you have that translation, in possessions, make it life. I guess the update I just learned between services uses the word life. It's gone to, I think, a better translation. But the pride of life, now notice it, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Our calling here in verse 15 is not to love the world or the things that are in it. Very simply, do not love the world. Now, what does John mean by the world here? Clearly, the word can have different meanings depending on its context. In John 3.16, we learn that God so loved the world. Now, it says here, don't love the world. How are we to put that together? Is God telling us not to do something He does? No, obviously, the world is used here in a different sense than it is used in John 3.16. And I, I don't think we need to consult a lexicon on this. Just as English readers, as we work our way through the New Testament and we read the word world, we realize we fit in pretty naturally the proper meaning to that term. So as scholars study the word, most of them will break it into three or four uses. I'm going to break it down just into two here today for simplicity's sake. But the first is the natural sense of the word. And we, you've read this, if you've read the Bible at all, you've read this over and again, and you just fill in that understanding. But the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says this, in this sense we speak of the world simply as we know it, as it lies spread out to ordinary view. The world. This is the inhabited world that touches our senses and our temporal earthly existence. There's nothing innately evil about this. And we know that as we read these verses. John 18.37, Jesus tells Pilate, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Speaking there of the incarnation. I've come into the world. Nothing wrong with that world as such. John 13.1 speaks of Jesus' time to depart out of this world. Before the Areopagus, Paul spoke of God who made the world and everything in it. 1 Corinthians 7.33, a husband is anxious about worldly things. Namely, how to please his wife. Now, is that a bad thing? No, it's just a mundane thing. That's, that's going to be a natural orientation. Nothing wrong about that worldly pursuit, that worldly thing. It just deals with this life, the temporal world and natural life here. Peter speaks of Christians as the brotherhood throughout the world in 1 Peter 5.9. As we read those things, those references, we don't take the word world here to have any sinister meaning. It just speaks of life as we know it. There's nothing wrong with the world in this sense. But we also recognize, as we've read here in 1 John chapter 2, that there's an ethical sense that's given to this word world. But in its least intense form, the world describes people who are oblivious to God. They may be even religious people. But God does not factor into the way that they filter life. To the worldly in this sense, they live with their eyes turned downward. They live in moral ignorance and blindness to the realities of the transcendent God. There just is no God up there in daily life. They might use His name in vain. They might breathe a prayer like they'd rub a rabbit's foot, but really when it comes down to it, God just isn't there. That's worldliness. 
this worldliness, a temporal orientation that just factors God out. Now, there's a more intense use of the word. That's bad enough to just ignore God and His presence. Many people not even thinking about it just go about life, even many Christians, don't we? This worldliness creeps in on our own life as we just live our life and just really hadn't thought about God much for hours on end. Haven't breathed a prayer, haven't considered what God thinks. That's worldliness. But there's a more intense sense. And that's the world as it stands for the kingdom of man in rebellion against God. Whether knowingly or not, it's living out its purposes in rejection of God. There's nothing inherently evil about the systems of human culture that we put together. That's part of the world in the first sense, the natural sense. So we have education and entertainment and government and jurisprudence and business and music and art, literature and athletics and technology. There's nothing evil about these things as such, but worldliness hijacks these systems in order to mold them into cultural forms which protect and promote sinful desires and expressions in rejection of God. It is in this sense that the world becomes a source of persecution of the followers of Christ. Why? Because they're living consciously under the reign of Christ. They are responding to the presence of God in all of life when that group runs into the group that has no time for God and is molding the world, in fact, in rejection of Him, there's going to be friction. So, as Jesus says in John 15, the world will hate you. That sense of the world, the world you've come to love, in fact, as you point them to Christ, is a world that's going to hate you because of your agenda your orientation. This is this this ethical sense, this unethical sense of the use of the word world, this sinful sense we find in Romans 12:2, do not be conformed to this world. 2 Corinthians 4:4, 4, 4, the god of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Galatians 1:4, this present evil age. The Greek word ion is often translated world and here as age, but the ideas are somewhat interchangeable. Ephesians 2.2 speaks of the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There's a world living in disobedience to Christ. 2 Peter 1.4, the believer is described as having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And listen to this, 1 John 5.19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The world is dancing to Satan's tune, whether it knows it or not. In that sense of the term, in this orientation away from God, in this communal dance to the purposes of Satan, you are not to love that world. You're not to love that system and that orientation. And the word love itself, we also have to nuance, don't we? What does it mean to love? We are to love the world in the sense of caring for people and proclaiming the gospel to them. But in this sense of the word, we're not talking about caring for people. We're talking about loving it in the sense of being drawn into it, attracted by it, or giving ourselves to the world's system and forms which ignore and reject God. Don't love the world in that way. 
We're not to esteem or find our satisfaction in the world's systems of God-rejecting beliefs and expressions. There's a call upon us here. Commentator Curtis Vaughn says this well. He says, To love the world is, and I quote, to court the world's favor, follow its customs, adopt its ideals, covet its prizes, and seek its fellowship. Loving the world in this sense is setting one's affections on evil and is tantamount to deserting God. Don't love the world. Now there's a very significant addition to this. Don't love the world or the things that are in the world. Don't love the things that are in the world. Again, we have to nuance the understanding, don't we? Is he saying don't love the things in the world, that it's wrong to like hiking on the superior hiking trail? It's wrong to go to a lake and to go fishing. It's it's wrong to sit by a campfire. It's wrong to look at a computer. It's wrong to live in a house. Well, clearly that's not what it means. Don't love the things of the world in that sense. I think there's probably two nuances to it. One is to love the things we love in this world, which were created for our enjoyment, but to love them to the degree we should. I can love camping too much. I can love my house too much. I can love my family more than I should. We can have inordinate passions and desires and love for certain things. But I think probably more specifically here, it is not to love the possessions, the technologies, the entertainment opportunities, the systems of this world, which are shaped by people who do not submit to Christ. I don't mean to present that as a simple answer. It's not. We'll talk more on that in a moment. But cultural forms such as music, athletics, entertainment, government, finance, and the like, they are not inherently evil. When he says don't love the things of the world, he's not saying that you have to hate those things. But these forms can be shaped to serve as vehicles which promote the God-rejecting thoughts and behaviors of depraved people. And it is of these vehicles and their communication of a spirit of rebellion that Christians seem to be growing increasingly incapable of exercising discernment as they filter them. So we deal with the media. There's nothing evil about that. We deal with, for instance, music. We deal with the accumulation of wealth. It is right for us to say these things are not inherently evil. Or even to ratchet it down so far as we live in some sort of cloister. We realize there's certain things in the world that are okay. A toilet's bad. An earthen pot's okay. Well, it's still things in the world. So we're not going to head in that direction, nor should we. But I think it's then false to assume that any vehicle that transports any cultural expression is fine in and of itself. That's not necessarily the case. But back to the point, we're not to love the world, we're not to love the things in the world, At the middle of verse 15, we now find the rationale for this. Why is this the case? Listen to the counsel of God. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, 
Let's skip ahead through the parenthetical comment. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. Simply said, love for the world is antithetical to love for God. We must come to terms with this. So if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. We're not loving God if we're loving the world. Jesus taught us this, didn't He? He said you can't serve two masters. The thing I love about Jesus, there's no false advertisement at all. He doesn't nuance anything to try to get us in and then convince us of of, of things after we're in. He just says you can't serve two masters. You'll serve one or the other. Love for God will always be in conflict then with love for this world and many of its cultural forms and practices. A husband can only love his wife or his mistress. He cannot love both at the same time. He must make a choice. And so must we with our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And I use these words purposefully as we think on James 4 and verse 4. You adulterous people, he says. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I can be married to Christ and I can have the mistress of the world on the side. No, you can't, says James. You adulterous people. This isn't going to work. You can only serve one master. And so John takes a pen and he writes to these recipients to help them determine if they are indeed born again. If they're walking in the light, one of the evidences that we are walking in the light is that we cannot be accused of loving what this godless world loves. We don't love the world or the things in it. So we must each ask ourselves, what do I love? What do you love? What turns you on? Where do you find delight in this world? Be honest with that list. Say, here's where I find delight. Here's what I find interest in. Here's what I love. And then ask yourself, if you love the very things that any lost person loves, and in essentially the same way, how can you know that you belong to the light? This is the evidence that we belong to the light, that we don't love the world or the things in the world. If I'm loving the world just like everyone else is, where's the evidence that I've been transformed? We should live to prove by our lives that we love God, not the world. Not proving it in the sense of trying to show off in some way or earning our salvation, but saying, I have been regenerated to new loves, to new desires, and that's evidenced in the way that I live. It will mean that there are some things that are very popular in this world that are off limits to me because I won't love the world. It will mean that some things are proper in their place, but I'm not going to love them the way that unbelievers love them. They're not going to become idols. All that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. It doesn't have its source in Him, verse 16. The world operates then as a separate sphere from the grace and the influence of God. 
The world is not sourced in the goodness of God. It's sourced in a depraved, in the depraved heart of man. It's not oriented toward conformity with God's Word, but it is, in fact, antithetical to it. Now, one of the reasons that I chose to start this series on worldliness with 1 John 2 is John's very helpful description of the world here. And it's, it's, it's a bit ironic in that as we read about the world in this ethical sense in the New Testament, very rarely is there really any description of what we're to understand about the world. But here, in what's something of a parenthetical statement, kind of a sideline, John really enables us to see what's at the heart of the world system. You see it there in verse 16. How do we understand it? It is marked by the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. The desires of the flesh. What does that mean? It refers to sinful cravings for what is displeasing to God. It talks about life in this mundane world and wanting things we shouldn't want. Not wanting to do what we should do and those types of ideas. It's a self-centered orientation that seeks personal pleasure in that which is out of sync with God's character. We could summarize it by the attitude, please me. Please me. Secondly, the desires of the eyes. That's any desire that entices the eye. It might be Eve's craving for the forbidden fruit because it was, do you remember this phrase? It was pleasing to the eye. It sparkled in some sense to her imagination. It looked good. It might be Achan who cast lustful eyes upon the spoils of war that were forbidden to him. And so he took clothing and he took money because it appealed to his eyes. He wanted to satisfy that craving. It might be King David who found a bathing Bathsheba pleasing to the eye and he wanted her. Whatever the particular sin, worldliness craves and reaches for that which attracts lustful attention. It is in a phrase, give me. I want that. Thirdly, pride of life. Earlier renderings in ESV have pride in possessions. It's an unfortunate translation. I'm glad it's been updated. That's a narrow definition of pride of life. It often does show itself in taking pride in possessions, but so as to show oneself important. But taking the words just at face value, pride in life, pride is boasting, arrogance, it exaggerates one's own worth and experiences to impress others. And it's pride of life. It pictures one who glories in self, often with the nuance of ostentatious pride, and thus often glorying in possessions. But without that qualifier, I think it's best to take this phrase in the broader sense of arrogant self-sufficiency. Honor me. Glorify me. So as we put those ideas together, please me, give me, honor me, which is the heart of worldliness, we realize that worldliness is primarily located where? It's primarily an internal matter, isn't it? It's not primarily an external matter, a list of do's and don'ts. That's how you define worldliness. These activities are worldly, and that's the end of the topic. 
these worldly activities rather are rooted in a heart orientation away from God. Living life in a please me, give me, honor me way. Now having said that, we should not conclude as some do that worldliness is exclusively a battle of the heart. It comes with trappings. It comes with vehicles. It comes with things that are in the world. There will be forms this world uses to carry forward its agenda and they will create an external battle. We mentioned, for instance, dress and music and technology and on it goes. There will be physical pieces to this battle. But having said that, for the most part, the battle is not primarily against physical practices, but against internal temptations. Sometimes Christians locking into the purely external want to run to a list that they give that these are worldly practices to avoid as if that's the whole issue. It's not by any means the whole issue, and I don't think it's really the primary issue. Worldliness is more a spirit than it is a list of behaviors. Again, that does not mean behaviors never qualify as worldly, but only that behaviors flow from the heart. So the first reason that we should not love the world is that love for the world is antithetical to love for God. We can either love Him or the world. We can't love both. And we're going to have to choose. And those who choose the love of God are evidencing that they walk in the light. But the second reason given to us here in verse 17 is that love for the world foolishly prioritizes the temporal over the eternal. Another reason to avoid love for the world. Verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. There is a way of life that ends in death. There is a way of life that continues on into eternity. It's nothing short of stupidity to orient your life toward an order that is dying while ignoring the eternal realm. And so, this is a reason not to love the world. It's a sinking ship. You're going to die on it if you stay with it. I have little doubt that I speak to some among us here today. This is exactly where you are. You're clinging to a sinking ship. Your life is oriented toward the temporal. Everything you love is dying. It's momentary. Because your orientation is not toward God and His purposes and His pleasures. It's really like everyone around you toward give me, please me, honor me. And there's something else then I think that would be very clearly true about your inner being and that's that you are empty. There's pleasure in the moment. There's a short period of time where those pleasures come as I get what I want as I satisfy the itch of the flesh. There's a momentary pleasure when people do what I want them to do, see things my way, and honor me in the way that I expect that they should honor me. There certainly is a momentary pleasure here, but it always leaves you dry. There's no lasting satisfaction in any of that. And though we could take this a lot of different directions, at the heart of what's wrong is that you're living for temporal things and it's drying you up. 
Because there's no joy, there's no lasting satisfaction, there's nothing of the eternal realm there in this way of living. And so it leads to an emptiness of the soul, a dissatisfaction with all the things in which you're finding satisfaction momentarily. You want to get off the merry-go-round because it doesn't help you. It only seems to hurt. The reason is you weren't made to live that way. You weren't created to live like that. Rather, we need to come to understand that we are lost in our sin and we find pleasure in a thousand places we should never seek it. We are self-oriented in such a way that keeps us from God. But here's the mercy of Christ to us as He comes to bear our sin. That selfishness is sin. That emptiness is sin. That orientation away from God, it's a rebellion against your Creator. It's a rebellion against the true source of satisfaction in your life. You've got to be rescued from it. It is not going to work to go back down inside and dig around in the mud and try to find some pleasure that's hidden down there in the mud. There isn't any. There's nothing lasting or eternal there. We must look up. We must look to our Creator. We must look to Him for rescue. And that's the beauty of the Scriptures and what they reveal is that He has reached down to us in our sin to fill us with everlasting joy. Not with temporal passing pleasures that keep leaving us drier, but with Himself. With a joy that will never end forever and ever as we seek it in Him. You can't find it in you. And you can't find it in this world, but it is found in our Creator, our Maker, the Giver of life, and in the work that Jesus Christ has come to redeem us from ourselves. Jesus came to deliver me from please me, give me, honor me. To redeem us for a whole other way and orientation of life. You have nothing to lose but the satisfaction of your own soul forever by rejecting Christ. So, if you're in that state of lostness and separation from Him, you need to recognize that there is great danger in worldliness. There's a world out there and there are things out there that are continually feeding you the lie that you can find pleasure in this temporal world that will be lasting. You've got to realize you must run to Christ for salvation. But so do we who have come to Christ as Savior need to recognize the dangers of worldliness. We need to secondly take precautions. We must orient our lives to please the Lord in every use of cultural forms. We must learn to think away from what do I like and toward what pleases the Lord and reflects His nature. This is the wonder of it all when that please me, give me, honor me, gets turned around and put where it's supposed to be in the exact opposite order. I begin now through transformation in Christ to live my life asking what pleases the Lord? What can I give to Christ? How can I honor God with the decisions that I make? And what we find, which seems ironic to us in our lostness and our sin, is that that is the source of our true satisfaction. 
To live for God might seem that I would be left holding the bag, the empty bag. And I nobly do all these things to please the Lord, but I have no life. That's our flesh speaking. Our fallenness speaking. Because we find that in actuality, it's when I live to please the Lord and give to Him and honor Him that I find life is all that it should be. It is filled with everlasting joys and satisfactions. To bring my life into line with that orientation is life itself. Though so counterintuitive to us in our selfishness, I was made to live for God. I was made to find my joy in pleasing Him. That's where my pleasure is unbounded. And so we have a great challenge. We recognize the danger. We take precautions. But we then need to live in this world with great discernment. Because it's not that we run away. We don't ground the airplanes. We fly in this culture, in this world, interacting with people, participating in the way of life. And so we make money. We go out to gain possessions and to gain wealth. But when we allow that to fall into loving the world, we become materialistic. We become greedy. And it won't be long until we begin to take unethical practices with us to work. And unethical practices as we fill out our income for the tax people. And on it goes because our making of money is corrupted by a love for the world. We will use fashion. But when the love for the world corrupts it, we will dress in order to attract attention. We will dress to take pride in what we are wearing that others would see and honor us. We will dress sensually to gain pleasure from the supposed pleasure of others. We will listen to music. But caving into the love of the world, we will listen to God-defying messages and sounds and texts that are melded together in rebellion against Him and it won't be any big deal. We'll involve ourselves in athletics, but loving this world leads to a self-worship in all of that. We will give ourselves at times to entertainment and amusements, but loving the world, we will be amused in a way that is driven by lust for pleasure. Not a craving to magnify God. We will give ourselves to education, but in loving the world, it will give itself to pride. It will give itself to materialism as we gain that education. If you're not a PhD working at McDonald's anyway, but even if you have that, if that's the case, it's pride that I have this education. There's possessions, but loving the world, they'll become idols. The key, again, to it all is not to love the world, but to love God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. And as we get that right, 
then through discernment and time and maturity, all of these earthly vehicles of culture, we begin to filter them rightly, to handle them rightly. We will do many of the things that our unbelieving friends and neighbors do, but we won't love it in the same way. We'll hold it very loosely. And at some places, the things that they seem are simply equivalent to being human will have nothing to do with it. But it's because we're finding our joy in pleasing God, in giving to God, and honoring the Lord. We will have to grapple with the internal, external. There's the error of overemphasis on the external, which misses the heart, the arbitrary list of legalistic standards, which we must avoid. But we will also seek to avoid the overemphasis on the internal, which refuses to think about how certain vehicles can easily transport worldliness in dress in music, in entertainment, in the arts, in education, in athletics, and on it goes. Eden Baptist Church, this word was given to us. It was not given to us by a God who wants to spoil our fun. It wasn't given to us by a God who's selfish in the wrong sense of the term and just wants our attention to be on His outdated ways. It's given by a God who created all things good and gave us this world to enjoy and who knows that we will enjoy it as we should when we find our joy and our strength in our relationship with Him. Do you love the world and the things in the world? If not, then what's happening within is this change of orientation that you're living to please the Lord. You're living to give your life away to His cause. You are living to honor and glorify His name. And as you do that, you handle the pieces of this culture differently than everyone around. And you find in the experiences of life that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let's bow for prayer. I have no capacity, Father, to imagine that there's a single individual here that does not need, at least in our mind's eye, to fall before Your throne and to repent. How easily enamored we are with small things. How easily we permit worldly temptations to snuggle up next to us and to whisper seductive words into our ears. And we like it that way. We acknowledge, Father, how far short we fall of finding in You our full joy and strength. Lord, we're all here as sinners. We're here before Your throne on the authority of Christ's death and resurrection, not on the authority of our own goodness. Some of us that from years past and perhaps right now have taken pride in our lists more than pride in our God. There's others that have no interest in ever asking the question, what pleases the Lord? We repent. We ask Your forgiveness. 
God, I pray that through this discussion, we've been easy on ourselves here today. This isn't a simple passage to work through and keep your toes clean. We get our feet stepped on. And we thank you for that hard work, but I ask God that through it that we'd be encouraged. That we'd be encouraged that you are indeed weaning us off of the small idols and the fleeting pleasures of this world and you are showing us the joys that are in your being. And I pray that those joys would be fanned into flame today by our consideration that we should love not the world or the things in it, but love you, our God, supremely. And I pray that you will help us to do that heart work. That through the Spirit of God, you will convict and teach and change us. And I pray, Lord, for this assembly that they would find ever-increasing joy in walking in fellowship with you. That the light and the warmth of your presence would begin more and more to transform the way they look at this temporal world. Not that we might run around with our nose in the air of how much better we are than anyone else, but that we might run around with joy of soul in the life that You've given us in Christ. I pray to this end, and for any who know not Christ as Savior, that You'll show them the emptiness has been solved by Christ. He's the only bridge. And I pray that they'll take that bridge today. In Jesus' name, Amen.